John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that anyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will be all, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this passage together, let's just ask for God's help and his blessing on his word this evening. God, our Father, we come 
to you now, hungry for the bread of life. Feed us, we pray, our God, for it is only by your Holy Spirit that we can understand anything properly from your word. And we pray that every word that comes out of my mouth would give glory to the Son. For we ask it in his worthy and precious name. Amen. Well, our sermon tonight is titled, The Hidden Manna. And as I said, while we read all 51 verses there, we're only going to comment on the first 46. This is a heavy chapter. There is a lot here. And uh, we're not going to try to get into every single detail, but sort of um, hit on the key points. And for those of us that are attending covenant groups, well, I would wish that we all were. Um, that's where we can drill down into this a little bit more. But for tonight, we're going to look at the, the um, verse 22 to verse 46. Well, last week we considered the fourth and the fifth signs that Jesus did. There are eight signs recorded in John's gospel, and we particularly considered the fourth sign, which was Jesus feeding the 5,000. And you'll recall that after he had fed the 5,000, he sent his disciples away across the Sea of Galilee. And halfway across the sea, they ran into a storm in the night. And Jesus saw them there and came to them. And after they recognized him, they received him into the boat and they were immediately on the other side. So the next morning finds Jesus and his disciples on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. But the crowd doesn't know that Jesus is on the other side. And so they came looking for him at Bethsaida, which was the site of the feeding of the 5,000. And that's where our story picks up in verse 22. Now, you'll recall that the night before, the crowd had planned to take Jesus forcibly and to make him king. But he had withdrawn from them to the mountain. Perhaps in the gathering shadows of night, he had withdrawn and slipped away and they were unable to find him. But the prospect of a king who could supply unlimited food and free health care, well, the possibilities were staggering. And so with the morning light, they come seeking him once again. And verse 22 and to 24 um, sort of describe their search for Jesus on the wrong side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a little bit amusing. And my paraphrase, perhaps, or the way I imagine that it went, was maybe something like this. Where has he gone? Well, he's got to be here. How do you know he didn't go with his disciples? Because I saw his disciples leave without him and he wasn't in the boat. So unless he can walk on water, he's not here. Well, that's not the only boat on the Sea of Galilee. Well, then let's go over there because I'm getting hungry. I didn't have breakfast this morning. I was hoping that he would provide it. So they get into boats and they head to the other side. And sure enough, there they find him in Capernaum. And in verse 25, they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, the Lord didn't answer the question. He got right to the heart of the matter. He says, 
to them in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father has set his seal. Now they had exerted a lot of energy that morning to find him. But Jesus knows that their determination was fueled by their desire for physical food. But there is something far more important than the needs of their body. And the Lord wants to meet a greater need, an eternal need. And he uses the opportunity to introduce them to something that they were not looking for. Food that endures for eternal life. And himself the one whom God had sent to give them that food. And then for the next 40 verses or so, he engages with them in a conversation about food that endures for eternal life. He calls it the bread of life. And he says, I am the bread of life. The first of seven I am statements that the Lord Jesus makes in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. Well, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. A metaphor, as you know, is a figure of speech that compares two things that are unlike so that we can understand something about an object that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to understand without that comparison. So, for example, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Well, we know that the Lord Jesus didn't go around with a bunch of woolly sheep following him around while he was here. But we do know how a good shepherd cares for his sheep. And so from that, we can understand something of the heart of the Lord Jesus and his care for those that belong to him. So that's the metaphor. But here the metaphor is, I am the bread of life. Now, I want to make this really simple. There are some children here, and and I want you to just look up here, and I want to see if we can make this example that Jesus gave really simple. What if I was to say to you children, there is a food that you can have that will make you live forever. You say, well, that's interesting. And if I was to say anyone can have that food, but before it will give you eternal life, you have to eat it. And anyone can have it, anyone can eat it, but not everyone will. The only people that will eat it are those who know where it came from. And the rest will not. You say, well, where did it come from? Well, it came from heaven. And eating it is not by taking a bite and chewing it, and swallowing it, but it is by believing. Well, you say, believing in whom? Well, the answer is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for he is the bread of life. He came from heaven. He was sent from heaven by the Father. And by believing that he is the Son of God, and coming to him in repentance and faith, you eat the bread of of life. And if you have eaten the bread of life, you have eternal life. 
So do you understand that picture? If you understand that picture, you understand a lot more than the people that Jesus was talking to. Because for this whole passage, Jesus is talking about this metaphor and they just don't get it. Jesus is taught, they're thinking about bread and they're thinking about manna. And those are signs that look to the true bread from heaven. And Jesus keeps trying to get them to look up here and they just keep looking down here at physical bread. Jesus used the metaphor to help the crowd recognize a hunger that went deeper than the hunger in their stomachs. To recognize a greater need than the need for food. He used their understanding of how physical bread satisfies hunger and preserves life to help them understand how he, the bread of life, could meet the deep hunger of their souls and give them eternal life. But alas, in spite of this long conversation, it seems that most of the people had no appetite for the bread of life. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because they were so focused on temporary things that they had no interest in eternal things. And you know what proves this? The three questions that they asked the Lord. Three questions that they asked the Lord revealed that they only wanted what would satisfy their immediate need, not their eternal need. And so therefore, they had no appetite for the bread of life. Now, do you know what those questions were? They asked three questions in this passage. What can I do for God? Verse 28. What can you do for me? Verse 30. And who do you think you are? Verse 42. What can I do for God? What can you do for me? And who do you think you are? And behind every one of these questions is a focus that keeps us from receiving and enjoying the bread of life. Now, I want to consider this passage under these three questions, which I'll use as headings to simplify us going through this passage. And as we do, my prayer is that the Spirit of God will reveal to us if these attitudes are lurking in our own hearts and that... He will set us free from them. So let's start with the first question. What can I do for God? Well, as we've already seen, the crowd had exerted a lot of energy to get to the Lord that morning. And that was good. Good that they were diligently seeking him. But the Lord declared that what um, detected that what was fueling their determination to find him was their immediate need, not their eternal need, as we've said. And so he instructs them not to labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. The Father had sent him to give that food, and only he could give it, and he wants them to have it. Now, their response to this is, what must we do to be doing the works of God. To paraphrase, what can we do for God? And it seems like a teachable attitude for them to take. Yes, Rabbi, maybe we have our priorities a little bit mixed up. Perhaps we have been thinking a little bit too much about what's in it for us. Give us counsel on how we can work more wisely and put our efforts behind what God is doing. The problem here was that they imagined that God was looking for them to work for him. 
And there are many, many people around us today who think the same thing. If I could just do enough good things for God, everything will balance out in the end. God will look at my good, and he'll compare it to the things I've done that I shouldn't, and it'll all balance out as long as I do enough good works for God. And the problem is that that overlooks our natural state before God. We were born into this world dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. There is nothing, nothing that we can do for God. All our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags we read in Isaiah 64 and 6. This was Cain's problem. He thought that he could bring to God the work of his own hands, the fruit of a cursed ground, but God rejected Cain's offering. And God rejects everyone who comes to him, offering him their works, their good deeds. God wasn't interested in their works whilst they were rejecting his son. In fact, their works were an affront to God while they rejected his son. There was only one work that was acceptable to God. And we have that in verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Are you trying to work your way into favor with God? If you are unsaved, there is only one work that God is looking for you to do, and that is to believe on the Son. Are you this evening counting in any way on your good deeds to make you acceptable to God? That's an attitude that will keep you from eternal life. It's an insult to God. He does not, he will not accept your works. Your acceptance before God is 100% based upon what you have done with the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this evening, what have you done with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, in response to the Lord's declaration that the only way they can be right with God is by believing in him, they respond, what sign do you do? What work do you perform? In other words, give us a reason to believe you. Seems they'd forgotten what had happened the day before. And by the way, some more of that bread would be nice. Basically, they were asking Jesus, what can you do for me? What will you give me if I believe? And that takes us to our next topic, the second question that keeps people from partaking of the bread of life. The question, what can you do for me? So in verse 30 they say, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. So clearly what they wanted was bread. They were not looking for proof, but for benefits. They wanted physical food to satisfy their hunger, whether it was manna or barley loaves. But those were just signs, as we've said before. Those were just signs that pointed to the real thing. And the Lord is trying to elevate their perspective from the signs to what those signs pointed to. So first the Lord corrects their assessment of what happened in the wilderness with the manna. Moses had not given the manna. His father had. 
And secondly, the manna was not the true bread from heaven. Their fathers had eaten that, and they were dead now. The one who came down from heaven and gives life to the world, that is the true bread from heaven. So Jesus is trying to refocus them from the manna to the bread of life. And in response, they say, Sir, give us this bread always or every day or give us this bread in continual supply. Well, Jesus responds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You say you want the bread of life, but you have no appetite for it. For I am the bread of life, and you do not believe in me. Their only interest was to fill, your only interest is to fill your own stomachs and seek your own interests. Now, this is very sobering when you realize that these people were not disinterested, the disinterested masses that had no thought for Christ. No, these people were quite invested in the Lord's ministry. And at great personal expense, they were following Jesus and watching him do these signs. These were people that would consider themselves followers of Christ. But in their heart of hearts, they did not recognize him or believe in him. What is our motive for following him? Is it merely for our own benefit? You know, we will be tested. Those who are just in it for what they can get out, can get out of it, will eventually throw in the towel at the first sign of persecution. And we are seeing those signs of persecution now. A pastor out west in jail tonight because he will not agree not to preach or to pastor. The Apostle John said in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That is what eventually happens to those who follow Christ merely so that they can satisfy their appetites. They are so preoccupied with their own stomachs, they never consider the needs of their souls, and they never find refuge in the Savior. And they will not endure. And even among those of us who know and love the Lord, it is possible for us to seek him day to day, for, or to seek him just for our daily interests, for the protection and the provisions that he provides along the way. But the Apostle Paul had to say to the Philippians, all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Is that true of us? Do we all seek our own interests and not the things of Jesus Christ? Let's search our hearts this evening. Do we merely seek our own interests? Or do we want above our own interests to exalt and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and to bless his people? Well, you know, it wasn't just the crowd that was hearing the Lord's word. Some true disciples were as well. And perhaps seeing the blindness of these people, maybe they feared for the weakness of their own faith, the impurity of their own motives. And maybe they feared that they themselves 
might fall away and become blind just as those that were speaking to the Lord. You know, it's been a tough past couple of weeks in Christian circles as we have seen the fall of yet another Christian icon. And it has caused some to become very introspective and to question, is anyone real? Am I real? Or have I merely deceived myself? You know, the Lord wants us, he wants his own to have assurance. You know, and you can have assurance. You can have 100% assurance. And in verse 37 to 40, we find a resting place for our troubled hearts. Let me explain these verses as they might have applied to Peter, for example. Peter was hearing all this. Peter struggled with faith. He'd had enough faith to step out of, his, out of that boat into the churning waters and to walk to the Lord on the waters. But then he looked away and he looked at those churning waves around him and he started to sink. But the Lord didn't let him go under. And Peter would one day deny three times that he even knew the Lord. But the Lord brought him back and restored him. Why? Because the Father had given Peter to the Son. And that was why Peter had come to the Lord in the first place. How do we know that the Father had given Peter to the Son? Remember in Matthew 16, when Jesus said to the disciples, Who do... Who do men say that I am? And they said, one said this thing, one said another thing. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This confession was Peter's coming to Jesus. And he could only confess this because the father had revealed it to him. And Jesus, who is the truth, declared that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But why would Jesus never cast out Peter? Because Peter was tried his best and everything? Is that why? No. He would not cast out Peter, and he would ensure that Peter stayed till the end because the Father had given Peter to the Son. It had nothing to do with Peter. It had everything to do with the will of the Father and the Son coming to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is this, that none that he has given the Son should be lost and that those who look upon the Son and believe in him should have eternal life. And as a child of God, your security rests in nothing less than the will of God and the love between the Father and the Son. If you can be lost, that means that the will of the Almighty God can be thwarted. And it means that the Son, who is the truth, can lie. That's unthinkable. Unthinkable. So do you have an anxious heart this evening, fretting over the weakness of your faith, fearing that God cannot forget your sins, and that ultimately you will be lost? Here is a resting place for your soul. Now, though you can't lose your salvation, you can lose the joy of your salvation. You can lose the the assurance of your salvation. Our assurance grows as we obey our Lord. But that is another sermon. 
But we have to move on to our final point and their last question. Who does he think he is? Well, in verse 41, they grumbled about him. They had come to him wanting their stomachs to be filled. And when he doesn't give them what they want, they begin to resent him. And they say in verse 42, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? In other words, who does he think he is? They place no value on what he was offering them because they place no value on him. They saw him as no more than the son of Mary and Joseph. You know, we don't eat food if we don't know where it came from. And they would not partake of the bread of life when they, didn't, when they did not believe where he came from. And why? Why did they not believe? Because unless the Father drew them, unless they were taught by God, the secret of his heavenly origin could never be known by them. Well, how were they to learn from God who they could not see? Only from the one who was from God who they now dishonored. You know, I want to tell you this evening that the only thing that matters in your life and the only thing that matters about your life for all eternity is what you do with the Son of God. What you do with the bread of life. You cannot claim to be a seeker while you dishonor the Son. I hear people saying, oh, I'm a seeker, I'm a seeker. And then they, they use the name, the precious name of the Lord in vain. God will not tolerate those who dishonor his Son. But those who recognize their great need and come in repentance and faith to the Son will ultimately find that it was God who drew them there in the first place. Well, these people were grumbling about the bread of life, grumbling about Jesus and what he was asking them to believe and what he was asking them to do. But I want to ask you a question this evening. Do you think that it's only unbelievers that can grumble like this? Or do believers do this as well? Do believers sometimes grumble about the manna, about the bread of life? Can you think of another place in Scripture where God's people grumbled about bread that came down from heaven? Can you? I know some of you can. In Numbers 21, we read this about the children of Israel. In verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, or because of the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless bread. Did they say that? We loathe this worthless bread? They loathe the manna, the bread that came down from heaven and called it worthless food? Had they thought about where it came from? And had they realized that it was a picture of Christ, I don't think that they would ever have said such a thing. But I think it's possible for us to complain in that way as well. How did God react to the rejection of the man? He sent fiery serpents to bite the people, and many of them died. And when the people cried to Moses to take the serpents away, the Lord told Moses to make a serpent of brass and to put it on a pole, and whoever looked on it would live. 
And you know, that serpent on the pole is a picture of Jesus bearing our sins on the cross. Remember how Jesus had said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. Think about that. Both the manna and the serpent on the pole were pictures of Christ. Turning from the manna had brought pain and death, but looking to the serpent on the pole brought healing and life. I want to apply this. How many of us, like the children of Israel, have grown impatient because of the way? How many of us are grumbling against what God has seen fit to put us through? How many of us are feeling a certain amount of resentment? But God has not left us without provision in the wilderness. He has provided the manna, Christ himself. In our grumbling, are we communicating to God that Christ is not enough? That we cannot rely on him to preserve us and to bring us through? Is there someone here this evening that has turned from Christ in anger and resentment and it has led you into sin and painful consequences in your life? There is a remedy. Just as there was a remedy for the bitten Israelite. We had to look upon the serpent on the pole. And brothers and sisters, in our trials and in our afflictions, there is only one remedy, and that is to look at our Savior, who suffered for us on the cross, to consider all that he has done for us, and then to humbly take up our cross and to follow him. You have no higher calling in your life. You and I have no higher calling in our life than to glorify the Son. You honor the Son when you patiently endure through times of affliction. And when you trust him and glorify him even in your sorrow. So this evening, I'm calling you back. I'm calling you to repentance. I'm calling you to look upon the Son and find healing and restoration and strength to face another week. Well, let me just say this in conclusion. The church at Pergamum in Asia Minor existed in a desperately evil place at a desperately evil time. The Lord referred to the city of Pergamum as the place where Satan's throne is. But the risen Lord said to a group of faithful people in the church at Pergamum, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. The manna is Christ, but what is the hidden manna? Well, I think it was what the Apostle Paul was tasting when he said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being being conformed to his death. It's personal communion with the Son. A communion that brings immeasurable joy and satisfaction, even in the darkest and in the most difficult times. And I want that for you. I want that for us. I want us to have the hidden manna. This alone thrills our hearts. This alone has the power to enable us to endure through trial and through persecution and to lift us out of our selfish, petty grumbling and enable us to feast on Christ.
Well, we can enjoy a little bit of that hidden manna this evening as we look upon Christ and his work on the cross. And as we do, as we come to the Lord's table and we consider the person and the work of Christ and we come there as brothers and sisters and we're reminded that we are one body joined inseparably to our head in heaven. We commune with him. That's why it's called the communion table. We commune with him and we find the strength to face another week. So let's come to the Lord's table together.